Listeners, we would like to thank our supporters on Patreon. That is Nick, Justin, Matt, Matt, Teddy, Paul, Grace, Alex, Sam, Joy, the Reverends Langenstein, and Annalise. Thank you for your money. We are using it to do great stuff. That's true. Like I've said, we've bought merch already. That's exciting. Pick it up and buy some as well. Mm -hmm. We're helping Joe and Ian pay rent. Uh, and so that's a good thing. That's a good thing. And uh, that's all I got. So those are good things. Yeah. I mean, we actually use it for like when we need sound effects, we paid for a one-time sound effect subscription. Uh, when oh. we, for Zencaster, we pay for that monthly so that the sound quality is better and I have better control over things. Like I invite you listeners to go back to listen to the days of Zoom early in the podcast and just compare the audio quality. Yes, <laughs> As it very is different. in fact better. <laughs> How many patrons do we need to get like, uh, just a sound effects box that we can just press buttons and you get like applauses or you get the rim shots or the auga auga. <laughs> I, if we got 500 patrons, <laughs> 500, that's a better one than if we double our patrons. I'm like, are you telling me that at 20 patrons, Joe, you're going to do this? Uh, yeah, <laughs> that seems unreasonable. <laughs> We can do, we can get an auga auga sound effect. So I was just re-listening to um, uh, the episode that actually the three of us just did, on, not just did, but did on Black Widow. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was a good episode. It holds up. But I, but I forgot that when we talked about Black Widow, when, when Ian mentioned Black Widow's like friend, like the, the guy who gets her all her stuff, right. Joe gives out like the most thirsty horny moan i've ever oh heard God. come out of a human being <laughs> like it. like you know that that uh that uh, uh um pakistani guy with the british accent oh yeah god oh Auga, <laughs> <laughs> Auga. i hate you all <laughs> anyway if you have five dollars or more a month to spare and would like to help us do fun stuff like make sure ethan never makes fun of me again on the podcast you can join our supporters over on patreon at patreon.com slash wthiap I, I will make a price i will set my price ten thousand dollars a month and i will not make fun of joe on the patreon ever again i bet that's negotiable listeners you you let me know uh, if you sign up for the Patreon, you can also get access to the patron-only podcast feed, which has fun bonus content, and the patron-only podcast that Ian and I record, which is called Pillow Talk. Um, this past week, what do we talk about? We talk about Lent? Uh, yeah, that's the episode that dropped on Friday, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, which is a fun one, I think. We we talked about ordinary time and why Ian hates it, like a hater. Ian does not hate ordinary time. Ordinary <laughs> time is like Ian's uh, third or fourth favorite when you're looking at the epiphany. Okay, fine. Maybe. It was dead last on the list. You'll have to listen to The season it. after the Pentecost was dead on the list. Anyway, wow. if you want to hear that conversation, you can join us over on Patreon. We also need questions for the one year anniversary of Pillow Talk, which we will be recording not this week, but next week. So listeners, if you have Pillow Talk questions, we have Pillow Talk answers. We would love to hear your questions. I mean, I mean, keep subscribing on, on Patreon because uh, Ian is probably going to get run out of the house and Joe will need to pay all of the rent. That's true. Oh. <laughs> 
Ian, no, all of our stuff is here. That's true. If you're not in a position to support us financially, there are still ways you can help us out. You can subscribe to us on the podcasting app of your choice, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, share us on the platform of your choice, or follow us on Twitter or Facebook, or just keep listening because that is good as well. It's true. And now, on to the show. One, two, five, nine. Robin Breeze, servant leader, rector, reverend, deacon, elder, what the hell? Welcome to What the Hell is a Pastor, a podcast about life in set-apart ministry. Each week, we draw on our experiences and challenges as current and former pastors to figure out what the hell it is that pastors do and how to do it as best we can. So listeners, you will have no doubt already heard about the postponement of the 2020 General Conference in the United Methodist Church and the waves that it has made across uh, United Methodism. Doesn't make a ton of sense since 2024 was supposed to be the next general conference anyway. My question for Ian, who is here on the podcast, I'm glad he is. Uh, My question for Ian is, is is it now the 2020 general conference in 2024? Or are we just dropped all pretense and it's just the 2024 general conference? Um, That's a a great question with a um, lots of... uh, legal disciplinary can of worms that are involved with answering that question. So I will do my best. Uh, the, the short answer is that this is the still the postponed 2020 general conference. Um, that language is, is still being used. The commission on the general conference believes that it does not have the power or authority to cancel general conference. I don't think anybody, like any body in the United Methodist polity system, believes that they themselves have the power to cancel General Conference. Um, Council of Bishops doesn't believe it has the power to cancel General Conference. Judicial Council probably doesn't believe that it has the power to cancel General Conference. No one, no one thinks that they can, that General Conference can be canceled. So uh, it will still be the 2020 General Conference happening in 2024, uh, which, as you so astutely pointed out, is a uh, or was going to be a regular General Conference year. And so uh, that poses some challenges. Again, we're still dealing with this uh, creation of a new classification of a General Conference that does not exist in our discipline. Uh, I imagine that there will be lots of <laughs> legislation and petitions that uh, try to like actually codify the procedures and policies around a postponed general conference uh, coming up, um, because that's how these things tend to happen. So they're accepting new legislation as well. Yeah, yeah. Well, so that's that's one of the that's one of the things that uh, also came out in in recent United Methodist news. It's Judicial Council uh, Judicial Council decision fourteen twenty nine was a question surrounding um, so the the Alaska annual conference wanted to send new legislation to the postponed general conference that was going to happen in 2022 
Um, or maybe at that point it was 2021 when they started this whole process. Who knows? And we've we've talked before about how there are uh, deadlines baked into the discipline as to how these legislative processes, uh, legislative legislation submission works. Um, I believe uh, an individual, any individual, can send legislation to the general conference and have it be like considered like with priority up to 230 days before the general conference opens and an annual conference can send legislation to the general conference and have it be considered like priority anytime uh, within 45, anytime before 45 days before the general conference opens. Right. We all following makes mm-hmm. sense so far. Sure. Yeah. Right. This whole uh, thing started back in 2020, and we were talking about General Conference initially being postponed. The Commission on the General Conference was, uh, you know, dead set on saying that the deadlines for those dates were hard and fast as they would have been for the opening, for when General Conference was supposed to open in uh, 2020. Um, So that would have been September 2019 was when individuals had to submit their legislation to general conference by. And um, I think it was sometime in February, I think, when an annual conference had to submit delegation uh, legislation to general conference by. Okay. In uh, February 2020. So the Judicial Council said, uh, no, that that interpretation that the commission on the general conference made uh, makes no sense uh, because it, it doesn't make any sense uh, and said the opening of the general conference is whenever general conference opens. And uh, so when general conference was expected to happen in August of uh, 2022, judicial council said all of uh, indiv- individuals had until January 11th, I think, 2022 to send legislation to that general conference and it had to be printed in the ADCA, the Advanced Daily Christian Advocate, which has all of the fun legislation and annual conferences had until whatever, 45 days before um, August 2022 is. So presuming that interpretation uh, is, uh, you know, precedent setting, uh, which I believe it is, uh, the, de- those deadlines get reset again to whenever they were, whenever they are supposed to be for 2024 is a long way of answering that question. Hmm. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. You're right. Will there be a general conference 2024 or is it like a joint general conference or will like general conference 2020 in 2024, make it so that general conference like pass legislation so that general conference 2024 can happen concurrently with general conference 2020. Uh, that's a, that's a great question. Um, that I don't know that anyone has really, many people have, have I'm sure people have considered. Um, I would imagine that some people try to submit legislation to the postponed 2020 general conference that is happening in 2024 that, says something along the lines of, you know, we are resetting the clock kind of a thing and 
The next general conference is 2028, and it's the regular, it's a regular general conference. Okay. If we get to, like, if we get that far. If sure. we get that far? <laughs> if we get that far. Because, like, presumably, you, so, all of the legislation that was submitted to, that we were considering for 2020 is still valid, and we still have to consider, like, that they don't expire. Um, and so, we're also going to have a whole crop of new uh, legislation to consider uh, at General Conference 2024, presumably. Um, and all legislation that is submitted and assigned to a legislative committee, which every piece of legislation that is submitted by the deadlines has to be sent to a legislative committee, um, has to be considered by that legislative committee. And every piece of legislation that is approved by a legislative committee it has to be approved has to be um has to be considered by the plenary of the general conference so we're gearing up at something that's going to look like it's going to take a long time or we're, we're looking at something that's going to have a, a lot potentially have a lot of legislation yeah, yeah that was my next question is like are they have they released dates or have they just said it's going to be in 2024 i think i don't think they've released dates yet um, or if they have, I've, I've missed that. There is question over where it's going to happen because prior to the pandemic, General Conference 2024 was scheduled to take place in, oh, I can't remember if it's the, the Philippines or if it was, um, I think it was Zimbabwe, one of the two. Because like we were, we were looking at 2024 and 2028 general conferences that take place like for the first time outside of the U.S. Right. Um, I don't think that is going to be the case. What I've heard is that prior, because prior to saying that general conference was going to happen in uh, the Philippines and somewhere in Africa, the like the general conference meeting location was on like a schedule rotation across the jurisdictions in the U.S. And right. the northeastern jurisdiction was, like, would have been the next location to have a general conference. So I've heard that it will meet somewhere in the northeast jurisdiction, but I don't know that we have a set location or set time yet. Okay. So they, they have not gotten to, we'll need to do three weeks to to consider all of the extra legislation or anything like that. They, right. Yeah, they've just announced they're delaying it. And the delay is because because of the pandemic and because of the long wait time for visas to the U.S.? A uh, combination of, uh, yeah, visas, international delegates and consulates across the world having, like, huge backlogs for uh, visa application appointments. combination of that with uh, vaccine access and equity has... Uh, was the thing that got the commission of the general conference finally say we can't have general conference in 2022. Okay. <laughs> because like international delegates would just not be able to attend. Even if like the U S had its shit together and we didn't have another COVID wave at the end of the year or whatever, there wouldn't be, there's not enough time for people to get visas and people right. weren't getting the visas they had applied for. I assume that, uh, yeah. Or like uh, just, they, they weren't getting appointments to, because the, there's just a, such a backlog at the U.S. consulates in these countries. Gotcha. That um, 
you know, the WCA has, you know, said that they believe they could have worked with uh, Congress and these U.S. consulates to clear up those log jams. I don't think that they could have. <laughs> it's amazing. Well, I mean, they all go to the same Klan rally, so they might be able well, to yeah. do that. You know. <laughs> sure. You imagine Maxie Dunham showing up at a consulate? Hello. <laughs> Let the Negroes come. What? <laughs> what did you say, Maxie? Well, so now that we've brought up conservatives, so Ian, what has kind of been the fallout of the rescheduled, postponed General Conference 2020? Um, the biggest piece of, uh, of news is that the global Methodist denomination uh, that is in the process of being formed and was going to launch after general conference, presumably after the passage of the protocol. Remember the protocol? I remember, I remember the protocol. I remember uh, that that happened and, and Joe screamed into a podcast. Yeah, it was a good episode. Yeah. <laughs> it, was, it was very emotionally dense anyway. <laughs> the, so the general, the, the global Methodist uh, church has announced that it is going to launch uh, actually on May 1st and be able to receive uh, congregations uh, and presumably annual conferences if it turns out that an annual conference can decide to vote to leave the United Methodist denomination. That's a, that's an open question. Um, so that's, that's been the biggest thing is that um, the global Methodist church is accelerating when it's opening and officially launching and um, is going to actually be a thing uh, in May of this year. For a little bit anyway. <laughs> yeah, for as long as they make it. For as long um, as they make it, yeah. Okay, but so does this mean that uh, they don't get their money? They are, uh, they're not going to get their $25 million in seed money. They aren't going to have the easy exit process that the uh, protocol would have had, which is actually the thing that they've really been fighting for and like they really want is the ability for an annual for a church to leave the United Methodist church without having to pay, pay through the nose for it. Um, <laughs> oh, I love it. Yeah. I love it. And they are, there's talk about like, there's, there are a couple of different disaffiliation processes and procedures in the discipline. Uh, there's one, there's the one, there's one that predates 2019 uh, and the 2019 general conference and one that was passed as part of the traditional plan at 2019. And even though the, uh, you know, Wesley covenant association and good news and all of them were talking about, you know, got the traditional plan, traditional plan passed. They're saying, no, use the, use the old version to, to disaffiliate and come join us. Right. <laughs> okay, cool. There's a couple of things about this whole, the whole situation that uh, confuse me. Obviously, one of the questions is if 
the conservatives spent, you know, 50 years sort of building consensus and uh, hijacking the United Methodist Church and then passing the traditionalist plan. What would be the point in in leaving now? Like, that's obviously one like question that I've always had. And it seems like the main point is, is that they don't like that the the parts of the traditionalist plan that they really wanted uh, were struck down by the judicial council. That's what it seems to me. Like it seems to me like the 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 stuff that they really want is like we really want you know a fascist dictatorship in which we are able to form a committee whose entire job is to investigate the sexual orientation of potential pastors, like. And so because we can't get that, then, oh, we're butthurt and we're going to go home. Or or it also seems to me like that they expected or, or maybe wanted everybody to just sort of fall in line after 2019. And then that didn't happen. And so now they're they're looking to leave. But is it really just a, a simple matter of they're really the the the, the reason why they want to form this new denomination, even though they effectively control the United Methodist Church and are going to continue to control the United Methodist Church if they if they continue doing what they're doing is it seems to me then that like the main reason why they want to leave is that the United Methodist Church is just not structurally what they want like what they're really looking for is an entire denomination that that has no avenues for dissent or no avenues for um, a change or, or, or kind of uh, a- any ability for them for, for any sort of resistance. Am I, am I understanding that correctly from your perspective, Ian, or am I way off? No, I think, I think you're, you've uh, mostly got it. Um, they are for a really long time, like the line in the sand that the traditionalists had was, you know, no change at general conference level, right? Right. Um, like the the United Methodist Church can't become more inclusive, or even you know the United Methodist Church can't become less restrictive. Right. The uh, election and consecration, uh, Bishop Oliveto created a new line in the sand that we crossed. Sure. And recognizing that the Council of Bishops. Or the the you know the jurisdictional college of bishops wasn't going to do anything to uh, oust Bishop Oliveto, which they shouldn't. Um, and then the fact that the college of bishop the, the council of bishops at the denominational level wasn't going to do anything to oust uh, Bishop Oliveto, which again they shouldn't, uh, was uh, is I think a, a major driving factor that. Here is, uh, we here's this line in the sand, and we've crossed it, and this is no longer tolerable for us, and we are going to leave and do everything we can to burn the denomination on the way out the door, um, which is also a, a big part of like a, a big thing that animates them is the is the the weakening of the United Methodist denomination. Um, sure. The Institute for Religion and, Demo- uh, and Democracy, the IRD. Um, this is 
this is where the <laughs> listeners we, you get into the this this sounds like tinfoil hat conspiracy stuff, but it's documented and it's uh, it's out there and it's uh, it's it's true. Like they like the the conservative political movement in the United States sees institutions that are progressive in nature, like denominations, church denominations, as being uh, existential threat to them, to the conservative political movement. And so you have institutions like the Institute for Religion, you have uh, organizations like the IRD, the Institution for Religion and Democracy, um, which is funded by, uh, which has been funded by the Koch brothers. Um, I didn't know that. Oh, yeah. Uses, using like, employing tactics that the CIA used to like destabilize governments in Latin America um, and employing those same tactics in not just the United Methodist denomination, but um, the IRD has been uh, present in um, the goings on of the Episcopal church, the, the Presbyterian church, the entire mainline. Are you uh, shitting me? No, not. No. Yeah, I knew what? This. How did I not know about this? How do we not talk about this every day? What? Is, what? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, Mark Tooley, he's uh, he's uh, going right to hell. <laughs> <laughs> what? Yeah, yeah. And uh, all, all, like the entire, the, the entire goal is the, the weakening of these mainline denominations which have histories of being really involved in progressive movements. Uh, the, the, you know, the Methodist social creed of 1908, prime example, uh, how Methodists were at the forefront of, of labor rights um, in the U.S., um, how uh, civil rights, all of that stuff um, that uh, we, we consider today to be good things uh uh the mainline church was uh involved in those uh movements and uh were not like the stars of those movements by any stretch of the imagination but um were a part of their success um uh, um i i you've just blown my brain so I, I need to back up because uh, so we there there is an organization functioning in the United States that's funded by the Koch brothers and uses training from the CIA to try to stabilize mainline denominations because they're like pro labor. Yeah, yeah. And like pro racial justice and all this kind of stuff. And that's what's been happening in the United Methodist denomination. Yeah. And and we don't talk about this every day of the week. Well, we're talking about it now. <laughs> <laughs> so so like when this is why this is why the liberals can't possibly win. Right, like in the because United we're not Methodist using Church. CIA training. Sorry, <laughs> we we uh, like like I said at the outset, like at the at the outset of this convers at this part of the conversation, you get to these kinds of conversations and the like reaction among the many people is 
that's just conspiracy talk. That is, you're, you're okay, fine, whatever. Yeah, the CIA has infiltrated the United Methodist Church. Okay, when actually that's that's uh, that's that's what has happened. So, like, have these people infiltrated bishops? Like, is that why it's such a big win that we have gotten liberal jurisdictional conference? Uh, delegates in and we'll have at least like liberal bishops in the u.s and be able to like take over the council of bishops because like because like the traditional plan that was formulated in a back room was formulated by these people um uh so i'll be honest i don't know the like extent of the ird's involvement in uh getting the traditionalist plan written and passed uh i don't know um like how the IRD, like, if there are bishops that are pawns of the IRD on the Council of Bishops, um, maybe there are. I can <laughs> name a few that I would guess could be, but I'm not going to. Because I guess that would be slander. <laughs> yeah, possibly. And, um, and, and Mark Webb might listen to this, so. <laughs> <laughs> One day. I, I, have, I have no comment. Um, <laughs> And, uh, but, but yeah, so like in the United States, uh, every jurisdiction, like if general, if jurisdictional conference happened in 2020, um, every jurisdiction would have likely elected a slate of, uh, progressive new bishops, um, or at the very least, not the bishops that were uh, hand chosen by like the WCA and the, the traditionalists. And so that reality, I think was actually a, a big part of like what got the WCA and good news to the negotiating table for the protocol. Um, recognizing that the council of bishops was about to get an influx of progressive or at the very least, not gay-hating blood, and would solidly have the the majority. I I'm sorry. I just I know I've derailed the entire conversation around this. But so so to go back to Ethan's question, so the the global Methodist denomination could have stayed within the UMC and still had like conservatives still have a voting majority at general conference, mm-hmm. uh, especially when you consider like the world. And so, so they're splitting off now just to like take their toys and go home. Like are, is, is this them giving up the fight because they've quote unquote gotten what they wanted or are they going to try to like destabilize the United Methodist denomination from the outside after they're gone? Well, I think that, um, they are, they're going to, uh, like the WCA has said that they are going to continue to exist within the United Methodist denomination, whatever's left of it, to um, try to do whatever it can to uh, the the language they use is make sure that the United Methodist Church adheres to the the principles of scriptural Christianity. Um, (laughs) Yeah, whatever that means. Whatever that means. so like we're not we're not rid of of the WCA um, with the creation of the GMC um, and the the GMC is very likely going to be setting up shop uh, setting up church plants new faith communities 
in spaces and places, communities that have a United Methodist presence uh, with the goal of continuing to weaken the United Methodist denomination and attract members away from United Methodist congregations into global Methodist congregations. <laughs> okay. Which, which, like, this has all happened before. That's, that's exactly what happened in the 19th century. Right. When the Methodist Episcopal Church broke off into the Methodist Episcopal Church and the Methodist Episcopal Church South, um, especially on those border areas, like um, fierce, like bitter, uh, contentious relationships between those congregations existed well into, well, well after the Civil War. Right. But so that's when Methodism was much more relevant (laughs) to our nation. Um, And like churches had a lot more power and authority than they have now. Uh, Does it matter now that we're going to have that kind of a split? Like, is this like, is, are we just dividing a diseased body? And so it doesn't like, like, do you get kind of why I'm asking? Like, it was probably a bigger deal when it was the Methodist Episcopal Church and the Methodist Episcopal Church South, because uh, we had all this money to build all these buildings that we're still dealing with today. But like, those those buildings are rotting and decaying, and nobody wants them. So, like, what are like? Um, I guess I'm asking you a very big question that's probably outside the scope of the episode and your knowledge. But like, do we think this is going to have a big impact on the world in any way, shape and form or just an impact on Methodists? Well, I have an idea to that. If I can offer an idea before Ian does, like, I think that reminding us, reminding ourselves that like the, the, the sort of the part that the IRD plays in all of this is important because the remember the IRD's goal is not really to like spread their own particular view of Christianity. Like the IRD's the the IRD's goal is to destabilize organizations that might be a potential threat to a political you know agenda, like a particular mm-hmm. conservative political agenda. And so, like, if if we remind ourselves that like that's always been the goal then it really doesn't matter that what they're doing won't actually make disciples of Jesus Christ or even even create a, a terribly um, uh, effective church, you know, like like the the we all know that the main line in this country is dying. We already know that. But but we also we also now know, you know, from from you know, in a post 2020 world that the evangelical churches are dying too. Right. Like we already know that we are, we, and, and we also know that um, at this point more it, we've getting more and more people who identify as Christians or evangelicals, see it as a political agenda anyway, and see it as a political ident- identity marker anyway as religiosity goes down among church folks and among evangelicals. So like for me, I, I see it, I see it primarily in terms of that, like the, the reason why this stuff is happening at the highest level is just to continue to destabilize uh, a possible, you know, a, a possibly potentially powerful group you know, that, that might screw with a political agenda, not to destabilize a church, you know, in, in the sort of the, 
the ecclesial sense. Now, I think like personally, like having no different people who at least clergy people who who are really excited about the global Methodist church, those people have been lied to. You know, right. we, we've talked about that before. Like like those people have been told that somehow the reason why this increasingly more secular and uh, society that that despite the rise of incredible conservative reactionary groups and politics um, has not changed its opinion on gay people or, you know, stuff like that. All the wedge issues that that the Global Methodist Church and the WCA want to say is true. Like we we know that even though this country and our society has not become more conservative in that way like they have been told that the only thing keeping the methodist church from growing is that it's too damn liberal right and so for i think many people they sort of imagine that like many clergy in particular they sort of imagine that now that we're back to scriptural christianity the the spirit will bless this church in such a way that that everything will change when uh when no that's that's not what's going to happen you know what's going to happen is uh the global methodist church in this country will mean nothing uh and and its entire job will be to uh make methodism in this country much worse because i think that's sort of the ird's goal right the ird's goal is for it just to be bad you know and and so we've done it it's nonsense you know and and but but i i can understand it that's right. well thought. it just keeps us uh kind of struggling within the heritage of methodism and doesn't allow us to have any type of public witness at all like or, or have any impact on the world outside of methodism it, it does just keep us stuck yeah Right, because as long as we're fighting amongst ourselves, uh, we can't be fighting against the the broader powers and principalities. Um, right, and I think um, the only thing I would add to the I think the very eloquent response you had, Ethan, um, a very on the nose and, and accurate assessment. Um, is that it's it's it goes beyond um, the 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 goal of like this kind of movement is is not like it goes beyond like putting Republicans in in political office right it is the weakening of institutions that pose a threat to the the neoliberal order um and the unfettered uh unregulated growth of massive multinational corporations that are big enough in scope that they rival a number of states across the world um in terms of size and scope and influence um and so in many ways let's say it's also a like not just like the IRD and and that movement is not just trying to weaken the the church it's it's trying to to weaken the the state 
uh, mm -hmm. trying to weaken any institution that is not going to allow these corporations to try to grow unlimited, uh, grow endlessly, limitlessly, um, with no checks and um, putting profit above all else. And they know that the church is, uh, when the church is at its strongest, <laughs> uh, is a real threat to that order. Right. Um, because the church offers, and, you know, not just the, the church, but religious organizations and institutions offer <laughs> an alternative to that order that right. directly challenges that order. Yeah, I love it. I really like uh, the IRD. I like that they exist because I like that it's like, wow, like we're just we're dealing with just an evil organization whose whose entire per like I remember reading IRD like literature, like stuff that they produce, like totally unhinged stuff about Marxist pastors and, you know, all of these different things. And, and it's great because. Um, I don't know why liberal folks or, or progressive folks can't like figure out how to combat that. Um, but, uh, you know, I think it's a lot of fun. I don't really know how to combat that either, I guess. Uh, and so I just kind of laugh and shrug and be like, well, I guess if you're not interested in the truth, then there's really nothing I can do, you know? Right. Um, I do. I love it. I love it. Joe, you didn't you never knew about the IRD? No. I think I've I I have I know the name and I've heard y'all mention it and I just kind of went along with it because I didn't know what it was. Like, you know, like sure. I was just like, Oh, that. this is something I don't know about. I'll Google it later. And yeah, no, I did not know all this. Uh gosh. So but so this is something that we've been struggling against kind of the whole time in the background. Um, it, it is what it sounds like to me. And therefore, like all of the impassioned arguments about inclusion in the world, we're never going to change this. Right. Like there were there were structural forces that were just using this as a wedge issue. And so I I don't know. I just find it so discouraging that um, all of the all of the like wrestling and thought and, and worry and and stuff that I've I know that I've put into um, thinking about inclusion was just kind of, I mean, like it changed me, but it didn't change anybody else. Right. And was never going to, it was never going to bring about justice um, or, you know, God's righteousness or the kingdom uh, in any way, shape or form. So then what are uh, like bigger organizations like United Methodist women is now, what are they? United women of faith, United women in faith. Yeah. Yeah. Are are there other organizations that are doing that are making those kind of changes to reflect the fact that like United Methodism is now dead? <laughs> <laughs> well, um, the United Methodist Church is doing stuff, you know. <laughs> like sure. splitting and <laughs> Yeah. Uh just uh Tara Barnes, uh, if you ever come on the podcast, you can talk about this more in depth. Um, yeah, she's scheduled in a couple weeks. Oh, good. So you can talk about you can talk about the rebranding with her. I'm sure she has uh, she has a lot of good things to say. Um, that that has been a change that is 
in the works for uh, I think five years. Oh, they wow. started they started that conversation around rebranding, um, and like the you know the United Methodist Women as a name only has existed since 1972, and throughout like the 150 years that Methodist women organizations have been around. Um, the United Methodist Women is the only time that it's ever like had the name of the denomination in it. <laughs> yeah, I do remember her saying that. Um, all of that good stuff. Um, but yeah, like they they uh, there are they are probably the latest big group to say that um, we can be more effective in our witness and our mission of um, you know supporting and advocating for uh, women and children uh, around the world if we have some uh, public distance from the United Methodist denomination. Uh, they still remain the official women's organization of the United Methodist denomination, and that has not changed. Um, and so all of that good stuff. Um, Right. West and Path. the discipline still mandates that you have a United Methodist, or uh, I guess a United Women in Faith chapter, you know, right. like they're yep. still. Yep. Uh, West Path was the other really uh, recent big one, because uh, it used to be the United Methodist General Board of Pension and Health Benefits. Oh. Mm-hmm. Um, but they rebranded to West Path, I think, during the 2016 general conference um by an act of the general conference um so that was uh the other one but you're also seeing um you're seeing that happen at much smaller local levels united methodist congregations uh hiding the (laughs) united methodist part of their identity on on both sides are also or both sides of the spectrum um, where you'll have uh, my home church, Asbury First United Methodist Church, when they redid their logo uh, back in 2017, I believe. Um, the like Asbury First is really big on the logo and United Methodist Church is really small on the logo. Right. <laughs> um, you have churches like church of the resurrection uh has always been like oh it's it's the united methodist church of the resurrection but everyone knows it as church of the resurrection and then you have other congregations that are just like no we're just going to call ourselves x church uh wilderness uh like uh, uh foundation church um and doesn't matter that it's a united methodist congregation um they're saying no we're we're we're, we're this and we're not gonna broadcast to the world that we are united methodist yeah, I mean, it kind of strikes me like the the um, when Pamela was on the church on the podcast talking about some of the churches that she works for, like they're Presbyterian churches technically, but like they don't necessarily broadcast that they're Presbyterian because that's not an important part of their heritage to them. Um, God, I like I just don't know what to like. On the one hand, I'm kind of happy for denominations to die, right? Like I don't think they are a productive part of the body of Christ, and it's just that we are all worshiping in different traditions. Um, but at the same time, there's part of me that um, oh, I don't know, I don't know. I I'm just so frustrated. Like 
so much of um, my self-understanding was as a United Methodist. And so much of my life was waiting for the 2020 General Conference to happen. And so we could figure out when the split was happening and like where I would fit. And now it just kind of feels like um, I should never have worried at all about any of this. And we should never have struggled at all because in the end, it doesn't matter. Like there were other forces at play. And now the pandemic has happened and shown us that like, actually none of our plans really ever mattered in the first place. So like, why, why should I stay United Methodist? You know, like white... What is there to kind of keep me in this denomination after like the wool has fully been pulled away from my eyes, right? Like I, I feel like I, like I just feel very betrayed over the course of this conversation. Um, and like maybe just a loose affiliation with the denomination is right. Maybe connectionalism was fucked from the beginning. Like, sorry, I realize I have, I have spiraled down into a dark place, but like, (laughs) this happens whenever I come on the podcast. Sure. Well, that's because like, I have a lot of existential angst around the United Methodism. Like, uh, yeah. Like what, what's the point? So like, I, I think that, you know, there's definitely a point like us struggling against this stuff and and working to have important conversations and working to uh, garner as much power as we can. I mean, here's the thing: like the 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 liberal and progressive wing of the United Methodist Church is really terrible at understanding how power works, as understanding how organizing works. Like like many of them are. There are of course uh, exceptions to that. Like like, and I recognize that. But many of us are very bad at that. Um, and so, and that plus the IRD stuff, we, we're going to be fucked from the beginning. Like, but can, but denominations are, 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 uh, you know, that's just the way it is. Like, that's how den- denominations are often very conservative organizations anyway, like, and conservative in that they, they want to preserve themselves. They don't want to, they don't want to totally get screwed up you know, or, or, or like, like change too much past unrecognizability. But like, I think that it was totally worth having these last several years of conversations and, and, and resistance and, and and all of this. Like, I, I think that, I think it's really instructive. I can't believe I'm about to say this. My brother-in-law, who does not listen to the podcast, how you doing, Justin? My brother-in-law is an is an evangelical. He's a a, a youth pastor for a, a mega church in uh, uh, where my parents live, and uh, it's a multi-site church. It's really big. It's whatever, and and even though Justin and I fundamentally disagree on many things, something that Justin understands and this church that he's a part of understands is that like you know, the, the goal, uh, at the end of the day is to try to get people who do not know who God is and who do not, and who have not like been a part of the church to know God and to be a part of their community. And, and that's not, and they don't need a denomination to do that. And like, that's a goal. And we do those things. And if we do those things, well, and authentically, and we form people well, and do it authentically, then um, some of this other stuff 
really doesn't matter. And that maybe, maybe creating situations in which, in which our focus is constantly on structures uh, invites people to come and try to hijack those structures. And so even though he's a part of this mega church, like I think that his sense of how these things are supposed to be is actually rather healthy because even though he himself is like, he's not super conservative, you know, he's more conservative than I am, but he's, he's not like this weird Republican guy, like, like the culture of their church and the way in which they, they sort of understand themselves is not sort of in line with all of these structural, political, social movements, right? Like it's just, it's a different thing. And, and I think that in situations like that, there's all kinds of like potential to transform people, to make uh, local communities better places to be, you know, to advocate for, you know, the poor and the oppressed in their context. But like, the more we we insist on the, you know, that's, I think, ultimately the problem, right? That was ultimately the problem with method, with United Methodism, and why it was targeted. Like, the more we insist on these sort of wide, far ranging, we are going to make the world better. Um, the more we are, you know, we, we find ourselves uh, prone to failure in that way. Like, it's just how it's going to be. We can't actually make the world better by amassing great wealth and amassing great power and all of these things, because it's just going to result in it being hijacked. And and we can't we, we can't really use that power well anyway. A little rambly. That's my thought. I think that makes sense. Like I follow all that. Um, I thought that Ian might have a, a response to that, but I'm formulating my response to that. Um, yeah, I what what strikes me in that is that like I on the one hand I fully believe that and like completely buy that, and on the other hand, um, I like I think about the catholic church well you know like never mind like i was because like if there if there is a denomination that has figured out how to last it, it is the catholic church like i wonder if we're just so early in the history of protestantism that like we just haven't figured out how to establish ourselves but also like i don't like i don't know i think that question is I would love to take a class that is fully just on the evolution of like structures within Christianity, uh, like denominational structures. Um, what's the word that I, just like organizational things uh, that do tend to be more conservative and do try to like amass and consolidate power um, and to see if there is a way to do it um to hold it loosely so that we get the benefits of connection without the tendency towards, um, toward, you know, corrupting power and influence and things like that. Yeah. Yeah. You can tell us our, your, your answer <laughs> and your thoughts. That's completely separate from what I just said. Um, so, uh, we, I've said on this podcast that I, I hold my, United Methodist affiliation um, very loosely, right? Um, 
and uh, far be it from me to extol the virtues <laughs> of the uh, denomination on an existential level. And I also uh, appreciate the um, respect for, for smallness that you both talk about frequently um, and how local, more localized forms of ministry affect change at the local level. Um, so I affirm all of that. And um, I, I come from the biggest United Methodist Conference, or second biggest United Methodist uh, uh, congregation, sorry, congregation in the Northeast jurisdiction. And I, it's not because of Asbury First United Methodist Church that I um, had all of these strong positive experiences in my life, my own life. Asbury First played a part in it, um, but I had my great awakening moment, heart strangely warmed conversion moment on a jurisdictional level youth trip. I went to United Methodist affiliated institutions uh, for higher education, both levels, um, and didn't graduate debt-free, uh, but graduated with... Um, a lot less debt than me. <laughs> uh, a lot less debt than some of my other peers uh, because of the United Methodist denomination. Um, and maybe that's, you know, that's my uh, own experience. And I know that's, that's anecdotal. That is um, not the norm for, that is not the normative experience for many United Methodists across the, the denomination. But the work that the global level of the church, the global level of the denomination does as a witness isn't work that local congregations can do by oh, and large. Own. Yeah. Um, United Methodist women uh, or now United Women in Faith gave $50,000 to the Trevor Project. The United Methodist uh, building and the United Methodist General Board of Society like, was where the American with Disabilities Act was, was written and hmm. authored and, and put into, like, passed by Congress. All of these, uh, uh, you know, the eradication of malaria in Africa was something that the denomination um, played a big part in. It uh, wasn't just Bill Gates? It wasn't just Bill Gates, no. Bill Gates helped. 
<laughs> sure. Um, and sorry, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. <laughs> um, and yeah, like has the the bigness of the denomination. Does does the denomination need to shrink? Yeah, it does. Um, like structurally, it's it's too cumbersome. It's too uh, too big to to be effective in the twenty first century. Um, and it is, I think, a resource and uh, a tool that can be used to uh, make the the kingdom a reality. Uh, maybe I'm naive, but that's why I'm still fighting. Well, I think that's very nice. <laughs> <laughs> what a dick thing to say. <laughs> we can delete that. We can delete that. That's so cute. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't say it. I, well, I did say it like that, but I didn't mean it like that. Oh, okay. <laughs> I didn't mean it like that. Yeah, I, I, like, I, I, I also have, without the... Uh, without the kind of underlying grouchiness. Like, yeah, I think, I think that like there does need to be a place for resourcing, you know, like I think, and, and I think a place for connection. And I think that the top level of the domination can be that, you know, I, and I think you're right. I think we need to shrink. And I think at the end of the day, we will probably look back on this and think, um, and know that I, that the end of United Methodism was a good thing because it was a project that was conceived in neoliberalism and colonialism. But um, but I I also still think it's going to be a really painful transition. Yeah, yeah. Where where two or three congregations uh, exist, there will always be a denomination. You know that's true. Well. I guess we'll wrap this up. <laughs> this, is all, this was this was a t- this we're, we're past an hour. It's a hard conversation. Yeah. Um, Ian, thanks for being on, man. This has been helpful. Always, yeah. uh, always a pleasure. Um, there are, uh, you know, we didn't. There are lots of other open questions that this delay uh, presents uh, that we didn't get to, but I am uh, happy about where we did get to. Yeah. Well, okay. this will be okay. Things will yeah. be well. Things will be well. All will be well and all things shall be well. Julian of Norwich. All righty. Very good. Friends, thanks for listening. It's been an episode of What the Hell is a Pastor? We are Ethan and Joe and Ian. And we will see you next time. What the Hell is a Pastor is a part of the Disruptive Disciples Podcast Network. Our theme song is written by Joe Shomwolf, performed by Joe Shomwolf, Ian Uriola, and Paul Uriola, and produced by Paul Uriola. Email us at wtheckisapastor at gmail.com. Find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash disruptivedisciples, on Twitter at WTHIAP, and on Patreon at patreon.com slash WTHIAP where you can get access to Pillow Talk, merch, signed cards, custom essays, and so much more. 
Thanks for listening and be courageous, friends. Bye.